talk about that word vision, and I've got to share with you that it seems like a big word all by itself even. It's kind of grandiose in the thought process. I remember before planning this church thinking to myself, well, my primary, one of my primary things in my job is going to be to cast vision. And what is that, like a net you throw out at people? What in the world does that even mean, to cast a vision about something? And I had this picture that you had to be like Moses and go up on a mountain and come down and then tell people what God said. And I thought to myself, what if you go up on the mountain and you come down and you didn't say anything? <laughs> like, what do you do at that point? And then you read scriptures that say, without a, a vision, the people will perish. And it's kind of scary to think about vision. And then you, you hear people talk about uh, business guys that were visionaries, that have visions of these huge things, like when Bill Gates, the, that every house could have a computer in it, and computers were like 600 pounds at that time. Or that Ford thought that every driveway should have a car in it. Or the Wright brothers wanted to be the first people to ever fly. And they have these visions of these things. And so I think, well, is vision just like a a big dream of something? And then one time I heard somebody use this definition of vision to help me get my arms around it. A vision is a clear picture of what could be. And it's fueled by a passion in your heart of what should be. And usually the way that that happens is you see that things are not as they should be. And to intentionally belabor the analogy, intentionally belaboring the analogy that I've been using with you for about, oh, five, five or six weeks now is that my family and I were looking for a new sports team, right? That was grown out of vision. Did you realize that? Because we were riding in our car and people are driving by us with their NC State flags. I didn't see a lot this weekend. And there are people that are driving by with their UNC flags and they've got all this stuff and we don't have any flags on our car. And we don't have a, a passion for a team here in town. And we realize things are not as they should be. <laughs> and then we get a vision of what could be. We could have a team. We could rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. We could camp out for tickets. We could paint our bodies. I don't think we will, but we could paint our bodies if our hearts were in it. And so what it was, we started to get a picture of what could be, and it's fueled by that things aren't the way they should be. But the truth is we didn't move to this city so that we could have a team to cheer for. There's a lot of teams all around the country. There's lots of people that you can pick. We moved here because things weren't spiritually as they should be. See, when Shannon and I were trying to figure out where he wanted us to start a church, like God had placed in our heart a desire to start, we took out a map, we started looking, we visited different places. We visited out in California, we looked at overseas, we looked all over the place, and when we started to think that maybe he was leading us here, we started to visit Raleigh, North Carolina on a regular basis. We started to meet with different spiritual leaders in our community, pastors, um, different folks that play spiritual roles, and I just started to ask them questions about, well, what is this community like? And I remember one specific meal I had with the president of the seminary out at Southeastern. He told me I could share this publicly. We were sitting at a restaurant out in Wake Forest, and I started to tell him about the kind of church we wanted to be. So we wanted, I didn't even want to be a pastor, okay, when I started going to ministry. I said, I don't want to argue about carpet color. <laughs> so get involved in a building campaign, right? I don't want to argue about carpet color. I don't want to argue about programs. I don't want to hear stupid conversations about different styles of music. I'm not interested in any of that stuff. I said, we want to make a big deal about Jesus Christ. And so I thought when I first went into ministry that I would be involved in some ministry that was just to make a big deal about Jesus and, and we'll attend church somewhere. But then God started to give me a dream that we could have a church that just made a big deal about Jesus Christ and seeing people's lives transformed by him. And that we would exist, not for the sake of filling up a movie theater now or for the sake of filling up a future building or for the sake of attending something, but that we'd see people's lives truly transformed by the kingdom, by Jesus Christ, by the power of his spirit, that people would walk in freedom, that people would know what it is to have a vibrant relationship with Jesus and not go through the motions of religion. And I said, this is the kind of church we want to plant. What do you think? He said, we need that kind of church here. And I said, okay, that's great. I said, how do you know where to plant a church like that? And he said, you can plant that church anywhere in the triangle. And he's older and wiser than me, and I, said, I wanted some guidance, though. I said, you know, how do I pick the location, though? Like, how do I know where we should plant? And his exact advice to me was, take a map, throw a rock at the map, wherever the rock lands on the map, plant a church there. <laughs> yeah, we didn't do that, just in case you're wondering. 
But I said, okay, what if that rock lands next to another church? And he said, you're probably still going to be just fine. He said, let me tell you the problem with many of the churches in our community. They went to our seminary. This is the president of the seminary up there. He said, they went to our seminary back in the 80s when we were arguing about whether or not we should believe the Bible. And he said, and many people, they don't realize their pastor doesn't even believe the Bible. Now they open it up on Sunday morning and they'll read from it, but they don't truly believe it. And so what they have is a social club of people that are very moral. And when I heard that, I thought, the church is not supposed to be a social club of people that are just more moral than the people that don't attend it. Things are not as they should be. And I started to visit different spiritual gatherings and just watch, just as an attender, didn't even necessarily telling people what I was even there for. And what I realized was I'd go to one Bible study that was led by an individual in the community, and I'd go to a church Bible study, and then I'd go to some other gathering, and I'd see a bunch of the same people, even though they weren't even connected to one local body. And I started to realize, how in the world, if these people are in Bible study all the time, are they ever impacting anyone for Jesus Christ? And I started to realize we've got people that just play religion in our community. And they just get together, and they do. They go through the motions. And this is how things should be, and this is what I grew up with, and, this is how, and that's not how things should be. And not to mention, you can look around, and you can see pain everywhere. There are a lot of people in our community that have been sexually abused, that have been physically abused, that have been verbally abused, that have been spiritually abused. There are people that believe that their addiction, their thing, whether it's their job or whether it's a, a substance or whatever it is, that's going to bring them satisfaction. That will escape the pressure. There are people that deal with anxiety and depression at incredibly high levels. Now, this is a great place to live, and there's less traffic and all those things in the mountains and the beach, but do you know how many people come to our church that are, they can't even sleep at night or they don't want to get out of bed in the morning? See, things are not as they should be. And as I even mentioned, just drive through and do a little survey. I do a little internet search. People addicted to sex, there's over 80 brothels just in the Raleigh area here, not to mention the businesses you drive by on the way to church. Things are not as they should be here. And because things are not as they should be, we get a picture in Scripture, though, that tells us what could be, that we could be a city on a hill, which has been our vision since the beginning of our church. And now we use this extra language of 10x and some of those things. It's really just strategy to try and implement the vision we've had since the very beginning, a vision that transcends a building, that transcends any of the numbers, that transcends all that stuff. It's a picture of what could be, that people would be redeemed and that people would know what it is to have a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, that they would walk in freedom with Jesus Christ, that they'd realize there's no condemnation, they've been forgiven, they can be totally themselves because God's the one that made them that way. They are God's workmanship, his poema, Ephesians 2.10. The people don't come to the understanding of that and walk in that and live in that and what happens is as one person does it then another person does it then another person does it is eventually all those people come and they're the light of the world and they're like a city on a hill that can't be hidden. And people are drawn to this place and they glorify our Father because of the lives that we live. That's the vision. And that's what we've been talking about since day one. And we're just at a new pivotal spot. And we're talking about whatever it takes. And I'll tell you what it takes. It takes vision. And Jesus Christ gives us vision. In Matthew chapter 5, in a sermon that he preaches, so I really just want to share with you a little bit today from a sermon that Jesus himself preaches. In Matthew chapter 5, it's probably the most famous sermon ever. It's called The Sermon on the Mount. And what's happening here, if you read chapter 4, you get a little bit of the context, is that Jesus is very popular, much like last week when we did the feeding of the 5,000, where crowds are coming. It says that people are coming from Syria. People are coming from Judea. People are coming from Jerusalem. People are coming from all over the world, Turkey, Iraq, Afghanistan. And why? Well, it tells us. Jesus has been healing diseases that no one else could heal. And so if you have a child, and you've been to all the doctors, and they tell you there's no hope, but then you hear about this Jesus guy, guess what? You're going to do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. And he's been teaching, unlike anyone's ever taught before, with a different kind of authority. So if your marriage is on its last little string, and you hear about Jesus, you want to go and just get a word from Jesus, and she'll, you'll do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. 
But what we realize from seeing these crowds is they're all just coming to get something from Jesus. They're fans of Jesus, and what he wants to do is sit down and speak specifically to his followers. Remember from last week? It says the sermon, while there's crowds and crowds of people that come, he sits down and he gives it to his disciples. He gives it specifically to the followers, probably more than just the 12, but to those who are truly committed to following him, those who have surrendered their lives to him. And look at what he says in verse 1. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. This is a sermon for those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who persecute you, who, those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs, those who are persecuted, is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. (laughs) Who does that? Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And now here's the vision. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how will it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You know what I love about this passage? It's really the heart of our church. And I did some research this week, and I don't think it's ever been preached here before. Not by me, not by Pastor Jason, not by our youth pastor, not by a guest speaker, not by anybody. But you hear it quoted all the time, that we would be a city on a hill, that we'd see a city redeemed, that we'd be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And it's really at the heart of who we are. Do you know what's at the heart of this passage? Change. Real change. Transformational type change. This passage is God's vision for the church. But what you see at the heart of that vision is that it requires that we change. And that's our first point, that God's vision requires that we change. God's vision requires that we're transformed, that we change, that we experience the life change that we talk about all the time at Southbridge. Now, here's the problem with that. People don't like change, do they? Like, I could do a whole speech on why people don't like change. And we could talk about if your boss comes walking in and says to you, we're going to make a few changes to your job. All of a sudden, there's some, something that happens. A little bit of anxiety rises up in you. In fact, even if your Facebook page changes, they change the format of that, you get upset. Okay, we don't like change, do we? What's interesting, though, is I could also do a whole talk on how we love change. That's why people line up outside of the Apple store every time they change their product and bring the new and improved product. You think about in cave history, you know, right? Cavemen, back in the day. What did they do before they had a wheel? Was it like a triangle thing that pushed their carts around on? I don't know. Somebody came up with a wheel. That was change. And I bet you everybody loved it. And they lined up outside the wheel store in order to be able to get the new one and all the apps that went with it. And I'm sure that's how it happened. See, we love change, though, don't we? We're scared of change. But we want change when change is better. Now, people ask me right now, and I've had lots of talks with people over the last month, how are things going to change? And I'm just afraid that we're going to change as a church when we get to the building. And I assure them we will change. We changed when we went from the country club to the theater. And I'm sure that when we move from the theater to the building, that we will change as a church. I believe that we'll change for the better. In fact, there were some things that we used to do better when we were at the country club than we do here at the movie theater, like hanging out 
and eating food. We used to have to buy $1,000 worth of eggs and bacon. <laughs> That's a lot for 40 people. Have you thought about, think about how many eggs you can buy for 40 people. We used to have to buy that over at the country club. Do you know what people would do? They would hang out after the service because we had a bunch of leftover eggs and bacon, and they'd have brunch together, and they'd just linger. But we're not real good at lingering here at the theater. And that's because of the facility and the way that it doesn't facilitate our value of embracing the one another as a scripture. I believe that when we get to the building, that that will change, that that will be a positive change. Other things will change too. Here's what people are really scared of. They're scared that the spirit of what we have here as a church will change. And I know that I can promise you that won't change because we're promised in scripture the reason why that spirit is present is because we're on mission for him. It hasn't been because we're at a movie theater. It's been because we've always existed to connect people to Jesus for life change. And he promises in Matthew chapter 28 that when you are focused on the mission, baptizing, teaching, everything you've commanded, all those things, that he will be with us. And he's not talking about his general presence because he's everywhere all the time, right? He's saying, I will manifest myself. I will show up. I will be present. I will be with you to the end of the age and you will see me and he will show up and he will show off and he'll do what he does. And that's what makes this place special. And we pray regularly, God, you know, when people walk through the doors almost every week, I don't know if it's been every week since we've existed, but almost every week before the service starts, I'll go in another theater and I'll just pray for this morning. And one of the things I'll pray is that as soon as people walk through the doors of this church, they sense your presence, God. Let me tell you why they do that. It's not because there's Texas Chainsaw Massacre posters out in the lobby, okay? Or Sinister or whatever the movie is that, that, that year, whatever's going on. That's not why you sense the presence of God. You know why you sense the presence of God? Because he's changing people's lives. Because we've been focused on seeing people's lives change. And when they're changed, then you see their light and their life and it shines into our lives. And what he's talking about in this passage isn't changing programs or facilities or any of that stuff. He's talking about life change. His vision requires that we change and it's an inward transformation that takes place at the heart level. And try and picture what's happening in this passage of scripture. People are coming from everywhere, right? They're doing whatever it takes to get to Jesus. And he sits down and he starts to teach specifically to his followers. And he tells them about the change that needs to take place in their lives. He tells them that if they want to be happy, that's the first word in the Sermon on the Mount, happy, he's got their attention, right? Blessed, it's the Greek term, makarios, it can be translated happiness. Happy is the person who, don't you think everybody wants to hear that? Every person throughout human history has been on a pursuit of happiness. It's in the founding documents of our country. We have an inalienable, I don't even know what that means, an inalienable right to life and liberty and the pursuit, maybe not to happiness itself, but to the pursuit of happiness. Every person that's coming to Jesus that day is seeking that. They want something more. Some are just coming, they've been trying to do the religious thing, and it hasn't been working for them. See, the best that they've ever seen has been what the religious leaders have shown them, the Pharisees, the the Sadducees, the guys that will do everything to try and be righteous before God in their own power, by their own works. These are guys, we read the scriptures, and they do crazy stuff. They'll do all kinds of weird things to make sure they obey the Sabbath. They don't take too many steps on the Sabbath, because if you take too many, it counts as work. (laughs) It sounds weird to us. They close their eyes when there's women walking down the street. They'll bump into poles, get all black and blue and bloody to try not to lust after women. These are extremes that they do. They tithe on the stuff that's in their garden, because it's income coming into their home. Now, I'll just share with you. We've had weird stuff come into our church before through the boxes that we put out for people's tithes. We've had buttons that have been given before. We've had foreign currency dropped in the box before. We've never had anyone put a strip of parsley. Please don't put any parsley in the box. These guys are tithing on the parsley. And that's their picture of righteousness. That's what people see. Do you know what the big idea of this sermon is? We won't get to it today, but it's chapter 5, verse 20. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter into heaven. And so people 
are coming to Jesus because they think he has the answers and he's going to tell them that? Do you know what he's telling them? It comes from me. It's only through my righteousness. It's only through an imputed righteousness, a righteousness that's given to you because of I've done whatever it takes. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to do whatever it takes so that your needs can be met so you can experience happiness. But that word means more than happiness. It means satisfaction. And he says things like satisfied are the poor in spirit. Who wants to be poor? Poor in spirit even. That means that you realize you don't bring anything to the table. That you don't have anything to offer. Blessed are those who mourn. And the word that's used for mourn there shows us it's talking about mourning over our sin. That we hate what God hates. That we see it the way that he sees it. That when we look at things and we see they're not as they should be, it breaks our heart. This is in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, we read this list. It talks about being merciful and pure in heart and peacemakers and meek and mourning and being poor in spirit. Does anyone do that? Does anyone actually live that way? Look at Christianity, and I'm not talking about even just all of society and all of America, but how many Christians do you know that they think this, is, this would be satisfying, to be poor in spirit, to be totally dependent upon God because you realize you don't offer anything? To mourn over our sin, to be brokenhearted over our sin, that's not how we live. We live to be independent. We want to be emotionally independent, physically independent, financially independent, independent in every way. That's part of American story. That's part of the American dream. Mourning over our sin, no, we seek sin. We just do it quietly and we try to get away with it. Hunger and thirst after righteousness, no, that's not true. We hunger and thirst after our own gain. We hunger and thirst after our own reputation. We hunger and thirst after a family that will fulfill us. We hunger and thirst after being married. We hunger and thirst after money. We hunger and thirst after some vacation that will give us the refreshment we need. We hunger and thirst after success of some sort. And we don't hunger and thirst after his righteousness. Peacemakers, no, we're aggressive. We're competitors. And so what we oftentimes do is we live life just like the rest of America and we put a couple Bible verses on it and we call it Christianity and we wonder why it lacks power. Because it's not what he says. And we get on the treadmill. We trust Jesus as our Savior. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but then you live your life just like everybody else and then the question becomes, why isn't this working? <laughs> maybe, maybe just maybe, we're wrong. Have you ever thought to consider for a second, what if... What Jesus says is actually true and what we live is not working. What if we just pause from the daily grind and the hamster wheel and whatever you want to call it, the treadmill, and ask ourselves, what if the one who's not only the author and perfecter of our faith, but actually created us, knew us when we were in our mother's womb, knows our thoughts before we think them, knows our deeds before we do them, what if he actually knows better than we do what will satisfy us? And what if it really would be satisfactory to be poor in spirit, totally dependent upon him? What if it really would be satisfying to our souls to mourn over what he mourns over, to hunger and thirst after him? Do you know the only way that happens? Change. He has to change us. He has to change the way we think. He has to change us at our core. He has to change the way that we live. He has to change everything about us. And you know what? That's his goal. That's what he looks at. And he looks at our lives and he sees what things are not the way they should be. And he sees what should be and a vision of what could be. He's showing us that here, this is what it should be. The very thing that you long for, satisfaction in your life, every human has since the beginning of humanity. I'm telling you, this is how it happens when you're totally dependent upon me. When you're humble, meek, in spirit, when you're a peacemaker, you seek what's best for other people's relationships, seeking peace for them with God, with you, with themselves. That's, that's what it is that will bring you true satisfaction. And then your circumstances, none of that stuff matters. Because you've got a divine joy 
that can't be explained by circumstances, that can't be explained by the world because of who you are and your identity. You've been transformed. But many of us, this doesn't happen, does it? And the reason why? It's because we have a disease. The disease is called sin. And he fixed the disease. And the fact that you know that you're a sinner is because everyone in here, you've lied before, haven't you? Has anyone ever lied before? Raise your hand. You've never lied? Awesome. You're a liar. All right, Jim's a liar. All right, got it. Saw another guy. Chris, you're a liar. You've all probably cheated before? You've probably all cheated on a board game or playing cards with your friends. It's like part of the game, right? Or on a test in school. I've cheated before. I've lied before. How many of you in here would say that it's good to be a liar and a cheater? That you'd want your kids to marry a liar and a cheater someday? Right? Anybody? Anybody in here? Philosophy of life? Okay, we're all on kind of the same page with that one. Then why do we do it? Why do we do something we don't want to do? Why have we done stuff that we recognize is not the right stuff? It's because we have a disease. You know what? It gets worse than lying and cheating. We hurt people by stuff that we say, by stuff that we do, by stuff that we don't do. Oftentimes we hurt the people that are closest to us. You don't want to hurt people, do you? Who wants to hurt people? It's rare that you find somebody that says, I like to hurt people, but we do it. Why? Because we have a disease. Well, Jesus Christ fixed the disease. You may remember at the beginning of the series, whatever it takes, I gave you an analogy. I asked you the question, I said, if I asked you to come up with $100,000 by the end of the week, how many could do it? And I don't think there was anybody that thought they could do it. And I said, but if you had to come up with $100,000 by the end of the week so that someone you loved wouldn't die, could you do it? And you could find a way. See, Jesus, he knew the way. There was only one way. He said, Father, if there's any other way, you don't think it was easy for him to go to the cross? And then while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why? Well, we have to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees because even they lie and even they cheat and even they do the stuff even when it's really pure looking for false motives. And Jesus is the only one that's never done that. So he has to give us his righteousness so he became sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. He did whatever it took for us. And he changes us and brings us freedom from that sin. So we don't have to be a liar. That's not our identity anymore. We've been forgiven. We've been redeemed. God sees us as he sees his son, Jesus Christ. He changes our identity. As the young lady said in the the video, that she's a daughter of the king, that we become adopted into his family, we become his children. He tells us an identity statement in this passage. He doesn't just change you for your sake. He says, you are identity. You are. This isn't, you could be if you tried really hard, if you worked enough. He says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, not the salt of the church. Not the salt of other saltiness. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It can't. It does no good for anyone. It's worthless, that's what he's saying. In verse 14, another identity statement. You are. This is who you are. You are the light of the world. Think about who he's speaking to here. He's speaking to these guys that are proven failures. Peter, James, John. He's speaking to guys here that are going to deny him. People are going to turn their back on him. You're the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. What is salt? What is light? It's a change agent. Salt and light are both used to change things. Salt, at that time, there was not refrigeration, and so it would be used to help meat not rot. Many commentators I read this week will say that just the very presence of Christians in culture slows the moral decay of our society. You are salt in this place. And there's all kinds of analogies of what salt can do. Salt's used to add flavor. (laughs) Now, a lot of us, we don't add flavor. A lot of times we make Christianity seem pretty dull, but shouldn't we be adding flavor to life? If we're the ones that have the abundant life, if we're the ones that have joy. So he's saying, you you are this. This is true about you at your core, at your identity, because of the change that I've done in you. Have you been changed? And if this is true at your core and at your identity, then 
You should live this way. You should add flavor to life. You should be a preservative, in a sense, in our society. You think about the other things that salt does. It makes us thirsty. Sometimes day laborers will be given things at the beginning of the day to make sure they don't dehydrate. It'll give them salt, salty snacks or salty things, so that they'll drink throughout the day. And you think about the analogy of thirst in Scripture. It's a hunger and a longing in our soul for God. You think about the Psalms in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, oh my God. My favorite Psalm, Psalm 62 or 63, verse 1. It says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. And then get this context. And David's fleeing out on the desert from Absalom at this time. He says, in a dry and weary land where there is no water, he longs for not water, God. Why? Because he realizes, because he's found satisfaction in God, he realizes that's the only place to find satisfaction. I'm totally dependent upon you, God. I hate what you hate. I want to love what you love. That's how you become a change agent, is that you're changed. And as you're changed, then God uses your life to impact and change others. That's God's vision. You're the salt of the earth. But when you lose your effectiveness, you're worthless. You just hide your light. It's no good. And the reality is that's how most of us live out our Christianity. That our goal as we play religion is that we'd attend church, we'd be more moral than our neighbors, we hope that people will notice, maybe we'll pray for people in quiet, but we lose our effectiveness. Because how much faith does it take to attend something? For some of you, it might take some faith because of your home situation or cultural background. For the majority of you that are here today, and you've been going to church for some period of time, it takes you zero faith to attend church. It takes you no faith to go to a Bible study. It might take a little bit of faith to be more moral than your neighbor is. But what does the scripture say about that kind of life? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And then you look at Hebrews chapter 11, it was by faith Abel was able to offer a sacrifice better than Cain's. It's by faith that Abraham's able to come before God with his most valuable possessions. By faith that Moses, talk about a vision, he's living in a palace in Egypt. He's got everything that you could imagine. But he looks out and he sees that things are not as they should be for his people And he's got a vision of what could be. And by faith, he leaves the palace to go and lead the people. It's by faith. You see all these people through Scripture. By faith, by faith, by faith. And how many of us live by faith? And the reason why most of us aren't salt and light is because we're scared to live by faith. And I'll tell you, living by faith is scary. Anytime I've ever done it, anytime I've taken a step of faith, it's been in the circumstances. If I just look at the circumstances, they're scary. And someone shared the gospel with me, my first step of faith. I didn't want to trust Jesus because I didn't want to lose control. I didn't want somebody else in control of my life. I didn't want to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. But when you focus on the one that you have the faith in, there's nothing to be afraid of. I remember going into ministry and thinking to myself, well, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that'll look like. And I don't want to deal with arguing about carpet. And I don't want to deal with all that stuff that I, as I'm starting to learn how the church works, I don't want to be involved in any of that. If God was calling me by faith, you go. By faith. Remember when God called Shannon and I to come and plant this church. We didn't know. We loved where we were at. We lived in Dallas. We had friends. We thought if we plant a church here, we actually looked around there. If we'll just plant a church here, we already know people will come because we've got friends here. We moved to a place that we had never lived. It was scary. We didn't know what happened. Now we're at a place where we're talking about reaching 10,000 people in our city. And I remember before I shared that with the church, I started to share that with smaller groups of people. Before I shared it with the elders, before I shared it with accountability partners outside the city, before I shared it with any of those types of people, you know I told was Shanna. You know what she told me this week? She told me that when I told her about 10X, that after I was done, I went upstairs and I started taping some stuff out. Uh, she went in another room. She closed the door. She started to cry. You know why she started to cry? 
It wasn't because she was so excited about 10,000 people coming to Jesus. Now, it's not that she's not. She started to cry because she was scared. She was scared of what that would mean to her. She was scared of what that would mean to our family. She was scared of what would happen. Because let me tell you something. Anytime you walk by faith, you have an enemy who wants to destroy you. As long as all you do is talk about stuff, you're totally safe. But you have an enemy who wants to ruin your life. See, Jesus told Peter, Satan has asked to sift you, but I've prayed for you. You read First Peter, and we see that Satan, he wants to devour. He's seeking whom he can devour. And you read John in John chapter 10. He wants to steal. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy your life. I remember the guy who told me about Jesus when I first became a Christian. I'd probably been a Christian for about three minutes. And he tells me, uh, God can't do, or nobody can do anything to change what God's done in your life. You are a child of God. Your identity has been changed. You're now in Christ. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing anyone else can do that can change that. But what Satan wants to do is cut your legs off from underneath you. He wants to make you ineffective. What this passage is talking about, salt that loses its saltiness. And at the time, I was running track. I was in high school. I remember being on the track team, and the image that came into my mind was someone that was doing hurdles. And every hurdle is an obstacle. And you come to that hurdle, if it cuts your legs up from underneath you and, and you fall off the track, you're disqualified. Now here's the deal. You're still on the team. You just didn't finish the race. You just didn't score any points. You just weren't effective for the team. You were on the team. You're still on the team. After the meet's over with, you're still going to be on the team, but your legs got cut out from underneath you. And that's what Satan wants to do to us. And you think that we're going to talk about taking a city for Jesus Christ? Now, as long as all we do is talk about it, we're fine. You think we're actually going to take steps to take a city for Jesus Christ? He's just going to sit by and watch? For those of you who step out by faith with us, with my family, and with Jason as he shared, and with the different people he'll share, don't think it's going to be easy. Don't think that Satan's not going to try and destroy you. Don't think your family's not going to get attacked. Don't think that things like that aren't going to happen. They will. It's by faith. You know, Abel, he offers a sacrifice. He ends up dead. Look what happens with Moses. He ends up wandering in the wilderness with these people for 40 years. He could have stayed back in the palace. People get chopped in two in Hebrews chapter 11. Read that stuff. But then you read here in this passage, blessed are those who are persecuted. They're the ones that find real satisfaction because they're dependent, because they're humble, because the circumstances don't really matter, because they're hungering and thirsting after God. See, for most of us, to live this kind of life will require incredible change. I'll tell you, we're at the same place that Jason was talking about with his wife and, and talking about this 10X project and what number are we supposed to give. And Shannon and I have been talking about that. We've been praying about it. I'll tell you, I never want to raise money for something that I'm not excited about giving to. And I'm excited about giving to this. But it's scary and it's difficult. And we're still wrestling through. What do you want us to do? And what part do we play in this process? But God, I believe whatever part of this, if we walk by faith, that you will be glorified. Because God's vision not only requires that we change, God's vision results in his glory. That's what it says in verse 16 of this passage. Verse 16, in the same way, you let your light shine before men, that your good deeds are seen, that they may see your good deeds, so you don't hide all your good deeds, and they will praise your Father in heaven. That's what it's ultimately all about, is that God will receive glory. That's what the mission is about. That's what us being satisfied is about. That's what all those things, it's ultimately about God's glory. You see, God's vision results in God's glory. That's the second point. That's our last point, and I'll just talk about it briefly. God's vision results in God's glory. You read it in the Westminster Confession. The chief end of man is to enjoy God, so satisfied, enjoy God, and he will be glorified through your life. John Piper says it this way, that he's most glorified in us, we're most satisfied in him. What does this passage say? Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, satisfied are, satisfied are those who mourn, satisfied are those who are poor in spirit, satisfied are those who trust in him, satisfied are. So we get the benefit of it, but it's not ultimately about us. 
None of it's about us. It's about God's glory. As we talk about our vision as a church, we dream that there will be a day where people move to this city because of God's presence in the city. They don't move here because Money Magazine said something. They don't move here because the housing costs are lower, the jobs are better. They move here, and they can't put words on it. They don't know why. They might say things like, we move here because of the people. We move here because they're so friendly. We move here, just people noticed us. They cared about our needs. And ultimately what they're saying is they see your good deeds, and they glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, that word for good in that passage is so unique. It's the word kalos. There's two Greek words that could be used, agathos and kalos. Agathos means, like, morally good. Like, it's just in, its, in itself, it's inerrantly good. Kalos means it's attractive, that it draws people in. And most Christians don't live attractive lives because most of us, we live our lives based on what we can't do because we're attending a thing and we're trying to be moral. I heard Joe Stoll say the worst part about Christianity is you lose all the good words on the golf course. And for those of you who've ever golfed before, you hit a ball into the water. What do you say? What do you say? Salt. You know, what do you say at that moment? You've got to use a Bible word, right? And a lot of times that's the way we portray Christianity to lost people. Is that, oh, if I, if I become a Christian, then I can't cheat on my taxes, that I don't have any good words on the golf course, I can't cheat on my spouse. Here's the problem. They like cheating on their spouse. They like cheating on their taxes. They want to be able to say those words. That's not Christianity. Christianity is that we would actually care about others so much that we'd give our lives away for the sake of those other people. That regardless of the circumstances that are taking place in our lives, we've got what they're searching for. See, they can never see that if we do the exact same thing that they do and then hope because we're more moral than them or hope because they see that our car's not in the driveway at 11 o'clock on Sunday, that maybe that's not how it works. He tells us here, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, and here's what happens. You're the salt of the world. You're the light of the world. And I'll change your life. And as I change your life, other people see it, and they're attracted to it, and they glorify me. You see, that's what happens. As lives are changed, more lives are changed. And that's what's happened at our church. And it's real scary at the beginning because nobody's life's been changed. But then you see that first person come to Jesus. And their life gets changed, and other people say, so that's what it's about. And you see, we continually are putting people before you that their lives have been transformed. I had a woman come up to me a few weeks ago after a service, and her words to me were very interesting, and she told me I could share this, and so don't think if you're going to come up to me after the service, I'm going to tell everybody what you said. But here's, here's what she said. She said, walks up to me, and she wanted to go up to the guy who talked after she goes to church for the first time in a long time, and she wanted to tell him these two, words, two lines. First line, I'm a Christian. Don't proselytize me, don't evangelize me, you don't need to say anything else right now, okay? This is what she was telling me. I'm a Christian, and I hate Christians. That was the second line. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, all right, I'm Scott, I'm a pastor. <laughs> I know a lot of Christians. What are you talking about? And before I can say anything else, she says, and I know it's my problem. And I remember distinctly my thought at that moment was, self-counseling, this is easy. And you know what she ended up telling me? She told me the reason why she hates Christians is because they're fake I asked her a question that I ask people many times when I meet them for the first time at church. I said, how did you hear about us as a church? And she said, well, I know a guy who doesn't believe in God and doesn't go to church, but he told me if I was going to go to church somewhere, I should come here. I love that because that's the vision of our church. In fact, one of the things that happened with our church when we decided Briar Creek was the place is that my wife and I were having dinner at a place and praying about where we should be, and we started talking to the waiter, and he didn't believe in God and didn't have any connection with any church. I said, if you did go to church, where would you go? And he didn't know of one. And I want us to be a church where if you were going to go somewhere, we'd be the place because you know that we care. And you know that the people that go there, they're real. And what she told me next was, I went to the website to check y'all out before, before coming here, and I saw that there were some stories of people on there. And when I saw their stories, I thought, maybe there's some real people at this church. She's been coming to this church since. 
And God's changing her life. One of the people that she met was a young lady, Michelle, that you saw in the video. Michelle doesn't tell her whole story, but when she got the flyers in the mail to be invited to come to church here, it was a big deal, as she said. She didn't feel worthy to be loved and all that stuff, insecure about what people were going to think about her. And she comes for about six months. After six months, she places her faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not until a year later of studying the Bible with other women that she starts to realize what it is to walk in the freedom that Jesus Christ gives us. And then you know what ended up happening before the young lady who came up to me that hates Christians? Before she left, she bumps into Michelle out in the lobby, who's also on the website with her video on there. And they go to dinner together, and God's changing lives through people's lives have been changed. And we get people who come here Sunday morning. We had somebody trust Christ who lived in Las Vegas a few weeks ago. So they're not going to attend our thing. Their life is going to be changed. Their eternity is going to be changed. Next week, we're going to make some decisions as a church. And what we're going to do and what decisions we're going to make to walk by faith and what our number is and all those types of things, the decisions we're going to make could have an eternal impact in people's lives. As a result of the things that we do next week, generations could be impacted by, pe- by what happens. And you know what we want to see? We just want to see more lives changed. Because every time we see a life change, it's like we get a glimpse of the glory of God. And I've shared with you a passage of scripture that's significant to my wife and I in planning this church is Exodus chapter 33. In Exodus chapter 33, what happens is that God tells Moses he's going to lead the people into the promised land. He says, I'm not going with you because I'll wipe those people out because they're sinful and they've got this disease and they keep screwing up and I'm holy and I will wipe them out. And then Moses starts begging God, you go with us, please go with us. Unless you go, they won't know. If you don't show up, if your presence isn't there, then they won't know that you sent us. And so God says, I'll go. And then Moses says this. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. But the interesting thing about that is if you read the whole book of Exodus is that he's already done this. At the burning bush, he showed you his glory. Moses, did you not see it? And when you parted the Red Seas, he showed you the glory. And all the plagues, he showed you his glory. When you went up on the mountain and you received the Ten Commandments and the mountain was shaking and the smoke came up from the earth and all that stuff, he showed you his glory. And what Moses is doing there is he's essentially going, just do it again, God. Just do it one more time. The analogy I've heard my wife use of this passage is it's like a kid looking at their dad who does something neat and the kid says, now do it again. And if you've ever seen little kids, then they just keep saying it. Do it again. Do it again. I, I, I came downstairs with my kids the other, yeah, last night and I was, you twirl them around one time and then I've got three little girls like standing there. They're, I'm next. I'm next. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. And you know what we feel like as a church? Is that we're just watching our father change someone's life. He gives us a glimpse of his glory. And then we say, do it again. Will you do it again? Will you save someone again? Will you change a marriage again? Will you have someone walk out of that lifestyle into real freedom again? Will you have somebody understand what it is to have real satisfaction that you're the bread of life? Where do we go? Where? We go to you. We have people realize that you're the living water, that we don't have to thirst again when we have you. Will you do it again? Just do it again. That's the vision. Just do it again. And the great thing is we get to be a part of it. You are the salt of the earth. You, and you know what? It's you emphatic in the Greek. That means you and you alone. There's no other hope for the world. He's got one plan for the world, and it's you. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts. I pray if there are any here that need to begin a relationship with your son Jesus today, that at this very moment, right now, that you'd have them be convicted of their sin and drawn to your son Jesus as their savior, that they would know that their righteousness could never exceed that of the Pharisees, but that yours does, and they could receive your righteousness and your forgiveness. I pray they place their faith in your son Jesus right now.
And if you do that, if you just mark that on your card before you leave your connection card. And Father God, I pray for those of us that are believers that need to repent. You call all people everywhere to repent because of what your son Jesus Christ has done for us. So we'd repent of going the wrong direction. We'd repent of thinking we could find satisfaction in anything other than you. We'd repent of failing to live by faith and living a stagnant life. We repent of playing religion, Father God, and we turn to you and we ask you to just keep changing lives. Do it again. Save someone today. Change someone today. Change a Christian right now. Change some of us in our thinking, in our hearts, in our behavior. Change someone's identity. Father God, we just ask you to do it. Please do what only you can do. And we will trust you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.